welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Hi there, and welcome again to the Defender Podcast. This is Rick Morton. Today is April 12th, 2023, and I'm really excited today to be able to share a conversation with you with a couple of friends and to really dig into a book that I'm terribly excited about and and hope that folks that are a part of the Lifeline and Defender podcast community will will jump in and benefit from. And so today we're um, blessed to be joined by Lisa Qualls and Melissa Corkum. Lisa and Melissa are uh, friends. We've we've had the chance to be together some and and get to know each other, and um, just really very excited about uh, these ladies and the work that they do and the way that they're contributing to the adoptive and foster community. Their new book is "Reclaim Compassion: The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Overcoming Block." care with neuroscience and faith. And so we're going to jump in and talk a little bit about that. We're going to give an opportunity to get to know uh, Melissa and Lisa a little bit better and, and to talk about some of the things that are, that are just really gold in their book. But before we get there, we're going to talk for just a second about Mission Kid. Mission Kid is a free resource for churches or families that perfectly complement your camp, backyard Bible club, VBS, or other ministry program for children. New for this year in Mission Kid is uh, focus on India. We'll journey to India and explore how God is working through our partners to share eternal hope through practical care and the gospel. Lifeline's curriculum includes lesson materials such as daily videos, teaching guides, and promotional materials like printable flyers and graphics to use on social media. You can find all of that by going to lifelinechild.org backslash mission dash kid. It's kind of a mouthful. Lifelinechild.org backslash mission dash kid. Or you can just go to the show notes and find that link. And, And we would love to be able to come alongside your church in your children's ministry to talk about how the Lord's working through his church to care for vulnerable children around the world, particularly uh, a new way or or a new presentation of that in India. So let's get to it today. Uh, I am excited today to be joined by uh, Lisa Qualls. Lisa is the author of The Connected Parent with Dr. Karen Purvis, a TBRI practitioner and a Christian spiritual director. As a birth mom and an adoptive mom, she writes and speaks with wisdom about the challenges and beauty of adoption. Lisa and her husband, Russ, live in Idaho, and they have 12 children and two granddaughters. Also, uh, Melissa Corkum. Melissa is an adoptee and adoptive mom, uh, and, and she provides insight and resources to adoptees and their parents through her writing, coaching, and speaking. Um, she is a safe and sound protocol practitioner and a certified Enneagram coach. Melissa and her husband, Patrick, live in Maryland, and they have six kids and two grandkids. And Melissa, I cannot believe that you have two grandkids and I only have one. It just doesn't seem possible. So, um, and I was able to beat Lisa to the grand, to the grandmother mark too, which she's really bitter about (laughs) just a little bit. I waited a very long time for grandkids and you, man, you just snuck in, in your thirties. Y'all it's like the best thing ever. I know, you know, having friends who just were all goofy about being grandparents, 
I used to think, no, surely not. Like parenting is great. It's, you know, it's hard, obviously, especially with families like ours, but it's, but it's great. But this is like all the benefit and none of the responsibility. This is kind of what I signed up for. And I just didn't know it until I finally got a grandchild. It's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty much all joy. I just can't even believe it myself. (laughs) Well, ladies, welcome to the program. We're excited to have you and would love to, you know, maybe start by having um, each of you just introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your story and about where adoption intersects with with your story. Well, for me, adoption has been a thread woven through my life since I was a young teenager. And I first, my first experience with it was actually a very sad and and devastating experience of becoming pregnant as a young teen and being in foster care and uh, being truly forced to place my child for adoption as a young teenager. And I honestly, and this is a whole other story, but I felt like adoption had ruined my life, (laughs) but in that time that I was in foster care, I came to know Jesus. And so my entire life was changed really, you know, for all eternity because of the suffering of that experience. But I didn't actually imagine that I would ever become an adoptive mom because over the years I became quite bitter toward what had happened to me. But God in his redemptive glory tends to take those things that we don't uh, want and he still can heal and redeem. So That is a very, very long story, but many, many years later, um, some good friends of ours called to tell us that they were adopting from Ethiopia, and that just opened something in our hearts, and we ended up joining them in that journey and adopting three children from Ethiopia in 2007, and then we returned a year later and brought home one other daughter in 2008, and so we added four children to our family through adoption, all unrelated uh, ranging in age from a baby of five months to 10 years old. They all joined our family within about 15 months, I'd say. Melissa, how about you? So like Lisa, adoption goes pretty far back in my journey as well. I was adopted as an infant from Korea in the early 80s. I have two siblings also adopted, no biological relationship, at least that we know of. And when I met my husband, I think I tell the story in the book, He said two things to me. The first was, I'm dating to find a wife. So if at any point in time you can't marry me, just let me know. And I've always wanted to adopt. And so if you're not in for that, let me know. And we were so early in our relationship that he didn't even know I was an adoptee. And so I think I stumbled out with something like, well, I'm adopted and I think I was okay with it. And so I think I have to be okay with adopting. And so that just set the tone for our family. We started with two kids by birth pretty quickly, and we were babies when we got married, Uh, but adoption quickly became part of our story. Uh, We adopted a toddler in 2009, and then that introduced us to this idea that trauma, early adverse experiences, all these things could impact uh, how a child sees the world. I naively went in thinking that if we adopted from Korea, because I was a Korean adoptee, that I would know how to raise a Korean adoptee. And I pretty much ignore and blew off all the training. Not that it was trauma informed. It was it very much focused on things that, that really weren't a huge part of our story. And so coming into 2012, we had been to a couple 
Christian Alliance for Orphan conferences. We had kind of expanded our worldview on how God sees orphans and vulnerable children. And we had done teen youth ministry as a family for a long time. And so we thought, well, toddler adoption was kind of tricky and we love teenagers. And so we'll go in for older kids. And so in 2012, we submitted an application to Ethiopia that said that we were open to to up to three children, any age, any gender. So we submitted that at the end of February in 2012. By the end of October 2012, we had adopted three unrelated children from Ethiopia. They were 11, 13, and 14 at the time. So now our kids are uh, 16 to 25. Wow. Melissa, every time I hear you tell your story, I just have to laugh. I was, I was sitting <laughs> because his toddler adoption is so hard, right? Let's just go right into the teenagers. We, um, you know, I, we warmed up to it and, and kind of progressively, we wrecked the birth order so that we could work our way into, you know, our way into older kids. But my goodness, I, I, uh, you know, one of the things I love about the two of you and your collaboration and the things that God's doing with you is is just all of the texture of your stories, just all of the ways that that God has has kind of layered experience and life and perspective and all of those sorts of things. And and I think it just comes through beautifully in in the things that you write in the research that you do. And so y'all just need to know, like, I'm a big fan, we're friends, but I, I geek out a little bit getting to have a conversation like this because, because I think God's using you in a, in a huge way. And, and so having said that, I just want to dig into the substance of the book and, and really want to give as much time as we can to as deep a conversation as we can have. And, and so Melissa, I'll, I'll probably throw this to you first, but in, in the book, Reclaim Compassion, you talk about this concept of blocked care and blocked trust. Um, and so for those that are that are listening to the podcast that are unfamiliar with those ideas, can you just tell us what is blocked care and blocked trust and and how does that how does that happen? So block care is something that happens in a parent's nervous system when there's an overwhelming amount of stress and it overwhelms the nervous system and the parts of our nervous system that are in charge of staying compassionate, our nervous system staying open and vulnerable, those start to kind of shut down. And it makes caring for our kids in a way that's deeper than just the kind of executive things of making sure they get on the bus in time, packing their lunches, all of those things, really, really tricky. And that overwhelming amount of stress can come from, you know, any number of situations. And so there's different types of blocked care. But I think the one that we probably hear from parents the most about is child specific blocked care. And that's when the stress comes from a child's behaviors kind of in the family environment. And a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with maybe trust based parenting or connected parenting or understanding the impact of trauma on a child's life. And so we have a lot of language for that. And Dan Hughes and Jonathan Balin, who coined both blocked trust and blocked care, use blocked trust as the term to kind of talk about what has happened in a child's nervous system when that child has experienced a caregiver who didn't come through for them in the way their nervous system was expecting. So for whatever reason, you know, maybe there was abuse or 
neglect or just even a, a special need in the parent where the, the child wasn't able to, to attach appropriately or, you know, the way God designed it. And so that child then develops this blocked trust towards relationships. They're like, I don't know, you know, these relationships that I've been in haven't been real predictable. I don't really know about that. And so the nervous system is incredibly smart and also not smart in some ways, right? Where it's like, oh, well, uh, then it says like all adult relationships might be dangerous. And so that's that blocked trust. And I think other terms that we may be more familiar with are like attachment challenges or children from hard places. And so, you know, the theme of all of this is that God has designed us for reciprocal relationship to have this back and forth where we give bids for connection and they're reciprocated and, and there's this like, you know, attachment dance and all of those things. And so when a child comes into our care and has that wall up, has that blocked trust and we're attempting to connect and we're giving our bids to connection as parents and they may not be returning them. And sometimes it might even be just because of something like autism where the, the nervous system doesn't reciprocate in the way socially that we're ex expecting, um, then our nervous system has this subconscious or unconscious, right? This not unconscious, I guess we're awake to it, but subconscious, right? It's not a decision that we're making. It's, it's happening below our decision-making power that starts saying, oh, well, that doesn't feel great when I give my heart, you know, I put my heart out there and it's not returned or it's trampled on or all of these things. And so then a parent develops this, uh, what Dan Hughes and John Bailenton called blocked care. And so um, I think the most important thing in all of that is to, again, just reiterate that it's not a conscious decision by the parents. And so when parents find themselves in blocked care with these like kind of feelings of maybe apathy or burnt out, you know, kind of wanting to give up, it's really easy all of a sudden to think, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible parent. And so mm. that's why, you know, we wanted to talk about, you're not a terrible parent. This is a, a nervous system thing and uh, there's something we can do about it. I love the fact that this really honors and kind of fills out the explanation that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, it really honors God's creative intent and, and how we're built. And folks need to know, like, there's deep neuroscience here and there's deep neuroscience behind this. But I also want you to know about the book that it's presented in a really accessible way. And you all talk about it really practically. I think the other thing, too, and, and we've seen this just from a practical perspective of preparing adoptive families is that so much of what's out there and, and Melissa, you referenced TBRI and, you know, other other modalities that we talk about in, you know, in trauma-informed care. And the perspective is always the child and toward the child. And very rarely does the perspective, you know, really shine on us significantly and talk about, you know, talk about us and, and our attachment and our attachment style and all these kinds of things. And so I think, you know, I just want to say thank you, because I think part of what you do is you give voice to both sides of the equation and help us to really be able to think, you know, broadly and deeply and accurately about ourselves um, as much as we're trying to, you know, to think that way and lean in with our kids. And you just raise things that not a lot of other people are talking about. And so it's important. So, Lisa, in, in the book, you identify this idea that you you talk about the, the role of parents and the role of the child and how those things come together. 
Um, one of the things we spent some time talking about here on the Defender podcast is is how our own grief, how our own experiences affect the way that we're able to parent our kids and that, that we need to be proactive and in, in the way that we think about those things. And so how does what you're presenting here help parents to, to think about how the role that they fill, the way that they're able to be accessible to their children, but also just what's good and healthy for them? Uh, with regard to, you know, with regard to their journey as they experience grief and loss and all of those things, even in the midst of, you know, their story and their adoption? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the way we design the book is that every chapter leads at the end of every chapter, we have practices, reflections and practices for parents to to do in in order to begin <clears throat> recovering and healing from block care. And one of the important things we do in the beginning is we ask parents to really think about what were their expectations of what life Mm. was going to be like as adoptive parents and what is their reality of what life is really like. And then what do we do with that big gap? How do we process that gap? Mm. And, you know, you mentioned grief and I think there is a lot of grieving to be done because mm-hmm. it it may be a different kind of grief than we're used to thinking about. It may be more of an ambiguous kind of grief where, you know, I, I made this decision. I chose this. Why do I feel so much loss? And mm-hmm. why do I feel mm-hmm. like the rug was pulled out from under me? This is not what I expected. So we really ask parents to process that because in that grief, of the changes that we experience, I think many parents end up going to shame. Like, Mm -hmm. what is wrong with me? You know, so many years back when I used to blog, I wrote a post called, I used to be a good mom. And I wrote it because Mm -hmm. a friend called me and she was crying on the phone. She said, Lisa, I used to be such a good mom. I loved it. I got up every day. I loved my kids. I enjoyed it. And now I feel like the worst mom in the world. Like, I feel like Mm. I can hardly stand to be around my child. Now, way back then, I didn't know about blocked care. I didn't know there was a Mm -hmm. name for it, but I knew a whole lot of parents were experiencing Mm -hmm. it. And and one of the things with our nervous systems is that, you know, the same part of our brain that processes physical pain. So like I touch something hot and I pull away because It's painful and I'm not going to do that again. The same part of our brain processes emotional pain. And so when we as parents are making efforts, like Melissa mentioned, bids for connection, when we are making normal type efforts to connect with our children and we receive a response that is confusing or really even directly unable to be received and maybe even aggressive against us, it's super confusing for our brains. And so one thing parents experience is just this incredible fatigue because we're always thinking, 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 okay, why did that happen? How do I do this next? What should I say? What should I do? You know, it's just super fatiguing, but also eventually it becomes really, really hard to continue making those bids because our brains start to tell us this is going to be painful. This is dangerous. Don't do it. And so not only Are we grieving the gap between what we expected and our reality? But we're also really confused by who am I? Who have I become? 
am I a good mom? Was I ever a good mom? You know, and I think it goes really deep into the core of who we are. None of us go into adopting because we don't like parenting. We like being parents. Many of us have either been parents already or we've longed to be parents. And so we had an image of the kind of parent we're going to be. And what has become to that person that we thought we were, you know, where is she? Where is that mom? I thought I was, and will I ever find her again? And so a lot of this is working through overcoming block care is doing some gentle and honest exploration and helping parents understand what's happened. Because I think, especially as believers in Christ, it's really hard to think maybe I have caused this Maybe I am not the person that I thought I was, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult. And so we want to help parents understand it and help them find their way back and maybe even someplace better than where they started. So I'm going to say something that's hopefully appropriately prophetic here. And it's the fact that I think we've reached the point in the conversation in the podcast where there are a bunch of people that are listening that are going, holy cow, have you been following me around? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Like, I think, you know, and and I think there there are things that, that many of us have experienced that we didn't know how to name it. We didn't know how to understand it but we knew it was present and and we and we know we've been coming up against it repeatedly all the time and and so i think this is you know this is again one of those concepts and one of those things that that's not um you know it's not at the margins it's not at the you know at the boundaries of the things that that we do in in parenting or in parenting, you know, through adoption, it's right at the very center of some of the stuff that, you know, that really kind of troubles us and plagues us and exhaust us. Um, and, and so that's why that's why I want to be such an advocate and say, look, I think I think every adoptive parent out there ought to grab your book. I think they ought to read it. And I think I think they ought to, you know, try um, to implement the things that are there because I because I think they're they're vital to that end maybe share a little bit of the practicality. So we've talked about the neuroscience behind, and we've talked about the conditions behind, but can we create a picture for people of what does it look like to begin for parents that feel isolated, that feel disconnected from their children that are struggling with this in, you know, the day in and day out, maybe what are some of those things that we can begin to do in order to in order to address that and in order to you know to move to a healthier place we talk a lot about nervous system care in the book the entire third part is we got just really as practical as we could and we use the term nervous system care over something like self care for a couple of reasons i think self care has a lot of baggage with it these days and so sometimes people dismiss that as not a viable solution before they even understand what we're talking about. I also think nervous system care is a little bit more um, maybe gender neutral. Like we, we find that dads are in this as much as moms in terms of experiencing blocked care. And for whatever reason, you know, self-care has this like bubble bath kind of maybe perhaps more feminine 
image to it. And one of the things that we talk about is something called felt safety in the book. And this is this idea that our nervous system is making a judgment call thousands of times a second about whether we're safe or we're not safe. And if we have these experiences, if our kids have experiences of early, you know, adverse challenges and attachment breaks, their nervous system is going to assume danger unless there's very clear evidence to the contrary. And as parents who could be experiencing blocked care, our nervous system starts to have that same confirmation bias that we might not be safe, perhaps in relationship with our kids that are having the biggest behaviors. And so kind of the name of the game for overcoming block care becomes how can I learn enough about my own nervous system as a parent to stay anchored in a sense of felt safety, even when my child is not acting out of their sense of felt safety or the people around me are not acting out of their sense of felt safety. And, you know, we don't want to turn off our stress response system, right? We still want to be able to sense real danger, um, but we don't want it to be so oversensitive that we're kind of prone to this shutting down, blocking off relationship. Um, and so we talk about how, where our nervous system is taking this data to determine whether we're safe or not safe and, and then really practical ways of how do we kind of cue safety? How do we give data points to our nervous system that say, Hey, you're okay. Hey, you're safe. Hey, we can do this. Hey, you're resilient. Um, and so that's kind of like the, the big picture of what that looks like. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I think the practicality of it, you know, the, the explanation behind it is it makes so much sense, but the practicality of what are those things we actually do? What are those things that we actually, you know, how do we calm our nervous system? How do we give, you know, give clues? And, and I, I really, again, I'm just kind of geeking out over here because I think there's a, there's a, a perceptiveness in all this to say that some of the rhetoric around, you know, self-care and those kinds of things, it feels sort of, and I would say it feels sort of light and fluffy at times in something that doesn't feel very light and fluffy to us at all. Like this feels a, a lot of days like war. It feels like, you know, intensity and, and those kinds of things. And so I think a lot of people are thinking in terms of like triage and, and the, and the need for immediate care. And when they're met with, you know, self-care that, that sounds like, well, that may be great for someone, but I don't know that that's, I don't know if that's appropriate for me. And so I, I love that there really is an intentionality to talk about the, the depth and the difficulty, but also just to get down to a place of being really inherently practical and that you're helping us to practice those things. You're helping us to learn those things and to, and to put them into play by repetitive action and by, you know, by, by creating um, you know, those things for ourselves. 
And so you really do a lot in the book to, to talk about this idea of, of like creating positive patterns and, and particularly creating positive patterns of, of relationship um, with our, our kids. And, and so what are some maybe some some examples of some things that you would say, hey, these are these are things that we see very often that are easy wins or they're they're things that we can do that folks might just kind of resonate with and say, oh, wow, that that kind of makes sense. Maybe I need to maybe I need to try that. Before we talk about connecting with our kids, I want to back up just a little bit and talk about sort of the whole process we take parents through in helping heal their nervous systems and overcome block care. You know, we we talk about it in terms of three different aspects of our lives and our bodies and our nervous systems. We talk about helping our inner world, the inner, you know, we take in, okay, I'm not explaining this probably really well, but our nervous system takes in information from within our bodies and in our minds. It takes in information from our exterior world, the our senses, and then it also, our nervous systems take in information from other people's nervous systems, so in relationship. And so we start with the internal world. So we start by taking parents very gently and very small steps through healing their nervous system in terms of caring for their bodies and working on having a healthy mindset. And then we move into how do you cue safety to your nervous system with your external world? And then we move into how do you cue safety to your nervous system through life-giving relationships? And so we talk about relationships with other safe people. We talk about your relationship with the Lord. And at the very end, when you've done all that other work to help your nervous system heal and overcome block care, we start talking about connecting with your child because we need to heal all those other aspects or at least be moving in that direction before we really have the capacity to do the work to connect with our child. So um, gosh, some examples in each of those. Melissa, do you want to maybe touch on some examples of overcoming block care in our internal and external world? And then I'll talk about our kids. Yeah. So I think None of this is rocket science, but if we think about the extra stress of parenting nervous systems that don't feel safe, right? Rick, I think you said something about war, like it feels like war sometimes, right? We wouldn't go into battle malnourished and exhausted and all of these things, you know, dehydrated. And so, again, like it's not rocket science to say, get good sleep and feed your body well and make sure you drink lots of water and make sure you, you know, take care of the little things that your body's telling you aren't right. You know, uh, Lisa tells a story in the book about this like toothache that got, you know, out of control because it felt like all of these other parenting things were so much, such a higher priority. And so I think what we want to give parents permission to do is recognize the impact that they can have on their entire family system if they are well rested, you know, well fed, all of those things, because it's not sustainable, right? To do the kind of parenting that we are called to do every single day. And 
not be getting, you know, enough sleep. And so, and I know parents are thinking, well, you don't know my life. Like this kid never sleeps or this, you know, I have to do this thing or I have to get to these therapy appointments. And what we're kind of gently trying to say is sometimes the trickle down effect of regulating your own nervous system has such a profound trickle down effect on everyone because we're all using each other to try to co-regulate. And so if there's not someone stable, like you can't control how stable your kid feels, but we can control how much safety we're queuing to our own nervous system. And it's kind of the difference between, you know, the, the foundational, um, like, healing our families from like the inside out versus like playing whack-a-mole with all the little crises that pop up. Um, so like, so some of the physical things I already mentioned mindset things, like we have a tendency in our confirmation bias to say like, Oh, today's going to be just as bad as yesterday or worse. And so we encourage parents to, you know, kind of reverse some of that, it could be something as simple as a gratitude journal, or we have these other activities, points of joy and foundation of fun and things like that, that kind of help parents' minds not be dragged down to just assume that it's going to be terrible every single day or to recognize that two things can be true. I could, I could have had a really tough day with my child and there could have been a couple really sweet moments mixed in to all of that chaos. Um, and then external world things. What I love about these are some of, they don't take a ton of extra time or money, but they're like adding things to what we're already doing. Like we have to be in our house if, you know, for stuck in our house all day with our kids, maybe we can make that that much better if we diffuse our favorite essential oil or play music that just really feeds our soul. That was exactly what, what I was hoping you'd say, because I, I think the fact is that sometimes I think we, we build in our minds that there are these things that we could do, or these things that we should do that are so different and beyond and counter cultural and counterintuitive. And the truth is that a lot of this is, is validating the fact that the very simple things that we should do for ourselves and with ourselves are that important. And I think against a backdrop where, and, and we've been tried, we've tried to be really careful um, over the last several years in, even in our pre-adoptive education here with families to say, look, we're sending you a lot of messages through this about your openness and your accessibility to your children and about how much of your world is going to change because of the needs of your children. And you need to be prepared for that and you need to be ready for it. But you also need to know that if you receive all of those messages equally and you try to lean in and apply them, you're going to burn out and, and you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt your kids. That there's balance in understanding that those things are true, but they're not ultimately true. We have to care for ourselves. And, and a big part of that also is the spiritual aspect of it and, and our, our walk with the Lord and about how, how God's using those, those things that we do. So we're not doing those things just, you know, to sort of please ourselves and feed ourselves. We're also doing it because those are, those are many things that really give us those moments to really be able to focus on him and to be able to, you know, kind of focus on the truth of the gospel and, and these things that are, that are so vitally important for us. And, and the truth is that's the stuff that can go out the door the first when, you know, when we're under, you know, this kind of stress. And so 
I think the the thing I would ask both of you is as we close today is for maybe somebody out there that's listening and they're they're feeling hopeless, they're they're wondering if healing is really possible for their for their children or for themselves. They're kind of a wash in the midst of of all of this. What would you what would you say to them if if you were just sitting down having a cup of coffee right now? And, and had a minute, what would you what would you say and, and what would you speak into the life of the, the person that's feeling that way? I think for me, I would really want a parent to know that just because it's hard, incredibly hard, does not mean they made the wrong choice, does not mean they did not hear the Lord, does not mean that they failed. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's hard because it's hard because we have stepped into this incredible brokenness. We've chosen it, yes. I don't think any of us had any idea quite how hard it would be. But for most of us, we were following the Lord with all our hearts, following his leading. We chose to love and care for children who had experienced so much harm and so much wounding. And now our lives have been so shaken right? Because everything we thought we knew about parenting and the kind of parents we were going to be, that may not really, it may not look at all like we thought it would. And so for me, the biggest hope I have is knowing that suffering doesn't mean we're out of God's will. I mean, sure, there are probably instances where we're suffering because of bad choices we made. But I always remind people about the Apostle Paul. I mean, for heaven's sakes, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He's so many horrific suffering things happened to him. And yet he was following the Lord in obedience. And so just because it's hard does not mean you are out of God's favor. In fact, he is so with you. You are so precious to him and the very preciousness and love that you are trying to reflect to your child. Well, that's how the Lord sees you. You are his beloved daughter, his beloved son. And so you know, there's a whole part of the book about our relationship with the Lord and pressing in to your belovedness in him. And I think the only way we're going to have the strength and the healing that we need is to draw upon the Lord for that. And, you know, we talk about felt safety and co-regulation, and we talk about having a calm nervous system in order to co-regulate our children, to bring their nervous systems into calm. Well, I think we find our calm by co-regulating with the Lord. We find our calm in him. When we are pressed into the Lord, we can breathe in his peace. And that calms our nervous systems and gives us so much more capacity. And when we feel like we can't go on, we can go to him and get that strength. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this because it's so dear to my heart. And I, I just want to encourage parents, no matter how hard it is, this is not the end. You know, you are on a journey and it's going to be long, way longer than you maybe ever imagined, but you are not alone. The Lord is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with you when he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He is with you and he's pleased with you. He's not disappointed. He's pleased with you. So press in. The people just got a glimpse of why I like hanging out with you too. (laughs) Yes, because that's, I mean, that's the good stuff. And the fact is that 
you know, we don't have to, we don't have to shoehorn our faith. We don't have to shoehorn our relationship with the Lord into this thing that we do. God is with us and he's present and, and he, he walks with us in this. And um, yeah. Wow. You know, we, we're about to have church here, I think is what's <laughs> about to go on. Um, well, Melissa, I'll let you kind of have the, the last word. Um, if you had that moment just for, for a second to be able to encourage somebody on the journey, what would you tell them? Man, well, it's hard to follow Lisa, but one of the things that we talk about in the book is how we define success. And it's something folks have been listening to our podcast or following me for even a small period of time. They're probably sick of hearing me talk about, um, they let me give a Ted talk about it. Like, but I, you know, just to continue what Lisa was saying, like we, I think in our humanness, give ourselves sometimes this impossible standard to live up to in terms of what we think successful parenting is on this journey. And I think it's easy to get caught up in successful parenting is, you know, our kids' behaviors and how they respond to us and whether or not we can get healthy attachment with them and, you know, how available. Like, I remember after learning about trust-based parenting and trust-based relational intervention and all of these things, like, all of a sudden my definition of success became like, I'll be available to my kids to connect a hundred percent of the time because that's what they need to heal. And like, and so then I was like trying to take the place of, of God in their lives, you know, like I'll be, if I can't be available and then they feel disconnected, it was, it must be my fault that they're, you know, not feeling like they're a part of our family or whatever. And so I think just to release parents into like, we, our definition of success has to be around something that we can control. And that's so tricky. And there's so much that we don't control. And, um, and so that might be like, I'm successful if I'm, you know, co-regulating in my relationship with the Lord today. And if all the other things are burning down around me, then like I can anchor in on that and not feel shame or frustration around, you know, all these kind of these other outcomes that we ultimately don't have control over. And, and I think that lesson has come at a length and price of a lot of years of parenting. Like, you know, between the three of us, most of our kids are all teenagers or young adults now. And there's nothing that can teach us this lesson, I think, more than watching our kids become young adults and, and realizing how much <laughs> is actually outside of our control. And But yet in the letting go of all of those things that I was trying to control in my early years of parenting has come such so much more peace um, because I'm not frantically trying to put, you know, my insert myself where, frankly, I probably didn't belong in the first place. You know, in our house, one of the things that we've been learning and something Denise and I have been kind of walking through is is really just embracing the idea that the Lord didn't place our children in our home because of our sufficiency. He he placed them in our home in order for them to be able to learn of his sufficiency. And that's been a lifelong, hard earned kind of thing. And it wasn't obvious for a long time. And we worked hard and, you know, probably hurt ourselves and hurt our kids along the way, trying to be sufficient, 
there's a weird way that the Lord has bringing us to a place of submission and bringing us to a place of awareness of those things. And I'm just, I'm really thankful for the way that both of you speak into that place and, and help us to be able to deal with our own insufficiency and press into the insufficiency of the Lord. And so thanks for joining us. Um, A couple of things I want to say is, as we're closing is um, one, there is a fantastic podcast out there that you need to listen to. And that's uh, the adoption connection because these two ladies are there regularly um, talking about all things adoption and a lot of the concepts that are around in and around this book and more. And so please um, go sign up right now, go find it wherever you get your podcast and sign up for the adoption connection. The, the second thing is I just, I want to, I want to tell you unashamedly, go out and buy yourself a copy of Reclaim Compassion and grab one for somebody else who hasn't heard this podcast and didn't get the benefit of of understanding what's there. And the reason I say that is not because it's not about book sales. It's it's about it's about ministry and it's about it's about helping. And I really do believe that there's there's vital truth that's being shared um, in this book. And so. Melissa, Lisa, thank you so much. Oh, you have something else. All right, go for it. Okay. (laughs) One of the things Melissa and I did in our process of researching and writing this book is we've developed 10 signs of blocked care. And Mm. we have a free assessment for your listeners that we would just welcome them to come and take this very simple assessment. It probably takes a minute if people are just answering from their gut. It goes through the signs of blocked care and they can find that at theadoptionconnection.com slash defender. And if they have questions, it will also give them a place to find more answers and more resources for overcoming blocked care. So how about that? How about a surprise, right? Like we get a free gift out of this. And I know one of the things that people listen that listen to this podcast love free things. So um, anybody that's <laughs> going to come too. alongside and help, right? Yeah. Um, but no, thank you. And thank you for that gift uh, for us and, and for our listeners and, and the opportunity to, you know, to be able to dive in a little bit longer. So one more time that URL is? Theadoptionconnection.com slash Defender. Excellent. And we'll put that in the show notes and make sure that folks uh, that when you go there, you'll be able to find it. Wow. Thanks so much. Let's do this again. This is this is fun and always great to to be able to catch up with the two of you and hear what you're working on and, and just hear how the Lord's using you. Well, thanks so much for having us. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Defender Podcast. We will be right back here next week again, and uh, and we'll be talking about how uh, we are called to equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphan and vulnerable children and vulnerable families. And, uh, and, and we thank you for uh, today and for the opportunity and pray that you've been ministered to well uh, by this conversation. Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. 
Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.